Today's episode of Big Feels Work is called The Hidden Cost of Asking for Help. We'll explain what the hell that means shortly. First of all, welcome back, Gareth Edwards. Hello. I feel like I should probably mention my name, which I often forget. I'm Graham Panther. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hi, how you going? I am a co-founder of the Big Feels Club, which is a club for people with big feelings. Now, topic today, hidden cost of asking for help. I actually want to just kind of start with a bit of a spiel, which is becoming more of our usual convention anyway. So why not? Mm. This comes from, I've been talking about this stuff for a while, but it, I, I spent ages working on my witness statement to the Victorian Royal Commission into Mental Health recently. And I realized like so much of what I've told them I want to talk about on this show. Mm. But I've picked one part, which is uh, this section called The Hidden Cost of Asking for Help. So I'm just going to jump into that. And then, Gareth, I'm very curious to hear what you make of it all. So (sighs) there are like the really well-known, often talked about costs of asking for help for your mental health, right? There's all the money you spend just trying to find something, anything that'll make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Then there's the time cost, the hours and hours of, of searching and ringing around this labyrinthine mental health system. But what we don't talk about very often is the hidden cost of asking for help. This is the cost to your sense of self, which is to me a devastating and sometimes lifelong cost that most mental health practitioners and policymakers don't even seem to notice. So what do I mean by that? Getting anywhere in this health system when you're having a hard time means taking on the language of the system. Mm. So in order to get help, you need to become someone who needs help. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the cost to your identity, right? Um, in taking on this 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 whole way of seeing yourself. And after a while, certainly this was my experience, it's hard to hear yourself think anymore or to think of yourself as more than just a set of symptoms. Now, I had a particularly extreme example of this when at 23 years of age, my psychiatrist told me I had brain damage, probably irreversible. Um, that was despite having two brain scans that showed no anomalies, but his way of seeing the world, his training, his model he'd been given was if you have a whole lot of big scary feelings going on, there's something wrong with your brain. So that was the frame he was given and that was the frame he gave to me. Imagine how that felt as a, as a young man trying to make his way in the world to be told there was something desperately wrong with me. That's the hidden cost of asking for help. But it can be much more subtle. So uh, I want to just mention here one conversation I had with a Big Feels Club uh, member a year or so ago, uh, a lady who describes herself as as having probably always been depressed, was how she said it to me, um, since she was a kid, but she never felt like that label depression applied to her because, you know, first of all, it just felt like a very heavy word, and she said to me, you know, I've, everything's fine in my life. What have I got to be depressed about? Mm. Uh, and so she was someone who for many, many years just never told anyone about it. She did go and see her GP and got some antidepressants, which sort of helped, sort of didn't, but never told anyone else, never tried any of the other options out there for help until about a year before I talked to her 
everything changed. She was suddenly seeing a therapist once a week. She told her sister about her experiences and, and found out they both had the same experience. She told her mum and got a really nourishing response. And I asked her what changed, why, why the sudden you know shift in your approach to all this. And she said, it was reading a Big Feels Club newsletter about something I call the long, slow, twisting shame spiral. <laughs> which is when you're just stuck in that shame cave for months on end, convinced that you're the worst human being alive for no obvious reason, which is always a fun thing. Um, so I wrote this piece about that, you know, just kind of explaining my experience. And to her, reading that, that one little article was enough to go, oh, I can't identify with depression. That's too heavy. That's too mm. much baggage there. I can't tell my family I'm depressed because they'll be like, well, what that, why? <clears throat> But I can tell them I'm in a long, slow, twisting shame spiral. So that's where it started for her. That's where all that change happened. And I guess, again, that's like that's the kind of the more subtle version of this hidden cost of asking for help. All the ads tell us, you know, just reach out, just ask for help. But there's no fucking just about it. Because mm. what it means is <laughs> you go to that GP, you go to that therapist or whatever, and so often you get given this new identity and that new identity is basically your fuck up, to put it mildly. That's a lot of it. That's a heavy trip to put on people. Even, even the, you know, the, the, the fun little phrases we have in Australia, like, it's just like a broken leg in your brain. It's like, yeah, but hold on. You're telling me my brain's broken, you dickhead. <laughs> so what I'm getting at is this, this hidden cost of asking for help the cost to your sense of self, the cost to your identity, even when you get the help. And we don't talk about it enough. So I'm curious, what do you think of all of that, Gary? <laughs> well, first, it's a real pleasure to hear you swear so much. <laughs> Normally a little sign that, you know, something's got your goat. You know, on a particular We're in sweary lockdown. <laughs> Second lockdown, it's all coming out. <laughs> uh, but what it tells me is we've, we've kind of stumbled on on something that's really not just annoyed you, but, you know, really kind of activated your passion for, for something different. And um, the, the first thing I've got is a question. Like, yeah. it's a devil's advocate thing. Like, what is it costing you? Tell me more about that. What's the cost? <laughs> like, money out of my wallet and time in my day, that's tangible things. I can tell you that they cost me. What do you mean yeah. when you say it costs part of your identity? So we talked about this a little in the last episode around meds um, when I was talking about how, particularly in my early 20s, it's such a tender time and it's, it's, it's so often the time where this shit really hits the fan for a lot of us. Yeah. Early 20s. Because it, it's, that, it's, that, it's the quarter life crisis thing, right? There's so much changing. But it's also the time when you're really trying to figure out who the hell you are. Yeah. But you, you're in your early 20s, you're like, who am I? And I just, I just interject. I think there's also an element of like, oh, wait a minute, this is bullshit. No, wait a minute, I was a child and you made all these promises about adulthood and it's not <laughs> panning out, everybody. Yeah. No, 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 can we go back? Can we roll back to version one? This is shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, so, so what am I saying? It's a perfectly sensible point at which to have a breakdown. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But the thing is, you're also then very susceptible to new theories on who you are. Yeah. And if the theory you're given by the people supposedly trying to help you is, oh, yeah, there's something wrong with you. You're not supposed to be feeling this way. 
that's that is it's devastating. It is. I want that's I, I, I want to know what it costs. Like I can understand someone's just giving you a new way of seeing yourself that's that's unpleasant or different or <laughs> has challenges. I want to know what it takes away because I think, I think there's it, some gold there. Yeah, I think what it almost took away from me is 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 a is the motivation to keep trying. Right. Trying to do what? Try and integrate hey, the stuff. Here we try go. And, <laughs> try and take the stuff that, that society tells me is wrong, like feeling sad a lot of the time. Mm. I'll give you the example. So here's my yearly example of this cost because I, th- I think your question's bang on. I go and get my GP mental health mm. plan every year. Almost without fail, and I think I've said this before on the, on the show, almost without fail, I do that 10-question that assessment and it comes out as severely depressed. There's two ways to look at that. One is um, one of these treatment-resistant types. <laughs> or two, there is a way of being in the world that to a more kind of medical norm normalizing lens looks like a major problem. Mm. And yet I feel like I'm also doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you have spoken about that test and certain questions just before we move on treatment resistant. I feel like that's got a place in our mad pride consumer movement. Like, Go on well, and and, and, t- and t- tell us that, but also tell for those who don't know what Mad Pride is, because I, I imagine there's some out there who. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> What's Mad Pride? <laughs> uh, it's like Gay Pride, but less sexy. That's possibly one way of looking <laughs> at it. Um, yeah, it's it's a social movement, like all the Pride movements, whether that's uh, ethnicity based, gender based, sexual orientation based. It's basically saying it's not us; it's you. Yeah, <laughs> like society, do better, please, because we're not at fault, and uh, and we celebrate in the same way the arts, music, comedy, writing. There's, there's there's versions of it in academia called Mad Studies. That's a great rabbit hole to go down if you've, you know, I'm guessing a lot of people like you know alternative research. You might be listening to this Mad Studies. There's some beautiful stuff down there, and uh, yeah, we're we're just very early. We're just not stomping down the streets there has been a bit of stomping down the streets particularly in canada so so that's mad pride uh, in a very brief nutshell and um i guess the treatment resistance thing i feel if we made it french it would be like like part of the french revolution resistance de la treatment or something you know <laughs> are you saying viva la, viva la resistance is it that- yeah yeah so there's there's not <laughs> we're not universally anti-treatment in the mad pride movement but uh we're resistant like, we want to know why. If we're going to be treated, then we definitely want to know a good reason. <laughs> but I guess when we come back to this issue of cost, I think you really I think you really found the gold with the old Socratic method of, you know, why, why, keep talking, is that what it took from you was your motivation or whatever to try and make sense of what was happening, to find meaning in it. Because pre pre-jumping yeah. that hurdle of asking for help, you were still having these experiences. You're walking around in the world going, well, that's scary, that's odd, that's weird, that's unusual. Mm. Mm. And you were seeking some sort of way of integrating, I think you used the word integrate, yes. into your existence. And then what you get is, oh, no, don't worry about that. It's just synapses. 
And, and uh, yes. have you heard of the word serotonin? You know, <laughs> and then from then on, you stop seeking meaning because you go, well, this is a problem. It's a, it, it's yeah, I need to be fixed now. And some of that is relief. You're like, oh, great. Yes. All that, all the challenging bits of that go away, but so do all the meaningful bits in your own inner being. Your identity stops looking for meaning and goes, ah, just a break. Just a broken synapse in the brain that this drug will fix. And then we'll be right back with you. God, yes. I mean, one thing I talk, I've talked about is it's like you, you, you want understanding, but what you get is an explanation. Yeah. And those are two quite different yeah. things. Now, I'll own that I also wanted a fix. Yeah. <laughs> we all do when we go searching. Otherwise, why, why are we asking for help if not for, for, for a fix? But, but what, what comes with that is this idea that you are broken. That they're inextricable from one another in the current formulation. Yeah, and, and I think again we spoke about this in the in the earlier podcast. You know, if, if that works for you, then Yahoo, like great. Yeah. Yeah. But what do you do if it doesn't or it's not enough? Then you have to re re remember that part of you that was like, I need integration here. I need meaning. I need some sort of way of of. And I won't say making sense because that puts us in the rational domain that science and medicine sit in. I like understanding, you know. Yep. And what's funny, like you take your eyes off the, the medical realm, artists have been doing this for millennia. Mm. We see it in every song, every picture, every piece of writing. It's all there, you know. It's just a different way of saying it. So, So when you say... Yeah, it's not even about making sense of your big scary feelings. I, th I think you're right. Maybe it's making space. Yeah. Making space for your big scary feelings and, and the cost of asking for help through the, the, you know, the particularly narrow medical pathways we're given. The cost is there's no fucking space for how you're feeling. Mm. It's all about the fix. Mm. It's all about what are we going to do about it? Or how are we going to get you better? And I'm not saying that at an individual level, there are, you know, there are all sorts of people listening in different practitioner roles. And I bet you bring every ounce of your, of nuance that you've learned through living with this stuff yourself yeah. to those roles. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, you know, besmirching all the fantastic work being done by individuals. I'm talking about the systemic, yeah, approach i'm talking about the system we have to work in yeah and it's important in this context you know and this is why the big fields at work is you know got a real specific focus because there's people working in that system knowing that that's people's experiences and also knowing through their own journeys that what it actually ends up being is a lot different hmm. and i think you know even now when i do work within the system I'm mindful that, you know, that's the space I'm in. So it, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard for me to express myself. And and also, you know, I mean, you have this experience too. You, you just got to say it all the time. We don't we don't have the solution, guys. Like, you, you know, you're doing this Royal Commission. Like, great. Like, go make it better. Definitely make it better. I could My experience of hospitals and GPs and care could definitely be improved on. You still haven't got the solution. You're just a better option. Yes. So that's exactly it. One of the things I think happens 
is there's this gravitational pull towards having an answer. Mm. So particularly if you're a clinician, particularly if you're that person, buck stops here, that I've gone to and said, help. Yeah. There is this gravitational pull to have something to help with. And yet, uh, even if your bit, <laughs> even if the thing you do, you do really well and you've seen it help other people, yeah. it's still not the answer. It's it's a tiny part of the answer. And, and if I'm lucky as someone seeking help, your tiny bit may be one of the 10 things that adds up to the answer, but I have to do the math myself. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, and if we were being really honest, when people say, help me, it's like, I can't. You can, I can't. <laughs> but yeah. then you've got to work with people's expectations, you know. Yeah. So here's the difference. Like, if you go to a mechanic and you say, you know, fix my car, and they go, well, I can't, but you can. You're like, no, I actually can't. <laughs> I actually don't have that skill set and I will make a bad job of this. But cars are like, what, 150 years old? They are not a natural, naturally occurring phenomena. We are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and hit, that's the difference. We've applied this really rational, logical, right-sided brain analytical, whatever you want to call it. We've applied this to a human experience and it doesn't, it doesn't do it justice. Hmm. I think something you said in the last episode I wanted to bring up here again, which is you, you, you talked about how there's almost kind of two groups of people when we're talking about people asking mm. for help. There's those of us who within a year or two of asking for help find the thing that does pretty much make it mostly all better yep. and then move on. Yep. And then there's those of us who find something that helps a little bit move on with life, things get wobbly again. Mm. Find something that helps a little bit, move on with life, things get wobbly again. That second group, first of all, I, there's, no, there's no science on this, but there, there, are, there are some clues that this is a bigger group than we think. So one of the things I cite a lot is, is a study showing that one in two cases of anxiety and depression will last for multiple years, mm. even if you're doing all the right mm. things. So what does that tell us? It tells us it's not a just ask for help, get better situation. Mm. Those people, that group that I'm very much in, the, you know, what do you, what do you want to call us? The, <laughs> I call us sensitive cats, yeah. personally. <laughs> um, people who, for whatever reason, are often going to fail the DAS questionnaire. <laughs> Even when life's going to be okay. Yeah. Going to get an F mark. Um, those of us, that group, do we need something different from the service system? So, so you, you know, as you, as you rightly point out, some will come and ask for help, get the thing, yeah. move on, be better. Great. But for, for those of, and, and for them, the just ask for help message makes sense, yeah. right? Beyond Blue works for those people. The just ask for help message is for them. Exactly. Purposely. That's, you know, marketing companies will talk about their demographic and it's not us. It's not us. But I, but I will say we still fit in that demographic the first time round. Yeah. And then we yeah. slowly but surely realize, oh, shit, nah, this isn't it. Um, yeah. Which can be a very dispiriting process. 
unless you find other people like you. So this is this is my prescription is how do we have more examples? Because the thing is, you can go through this system. You can spend 10 years asking for help and never meet another person who's going through what you're going through. Mm. So mm. That thing I mentioned, you know, the one in two cases of anxiety and depression will last for multiple years. No one fucking tells you that. Mm. So if that's you out there struggling for many years, despite doing all the right things, you think you are the screw up. Yeah. And they, and they tell you a story as well that you then have to swallow, which is even harder than the swallowing the help thing. So if you're told you're treatment resistant, you're like, oh, not only am I fucked, I'm fucked at being fucked. Exactly. And then where does that leave you? You know, so that, that, that costs twice and possibly twice as hard because yep. that will take your, your, your hope, your faith, anything that you've got that, you know, some way life is livable. So I think there's two, uh, I'm not going to say answers because the whole thing we're saying here is there's no one answer, but I think there's two kind of things we can do as mental health professionals. One is we can, we can really impress upon people and offer it when we can the importance of communing with fellow travelers. Mm. That can be formal. It can be going to peer groups. It can be, um, grassroots stuff like alternatives to suicide which is mm. basically aa for suicide somewhere you can rock up and say hey i feel like dying and no one's going to lock you up for it mm. um there's there's all sorts of uh you know ways you can do that formally there's things like the big feels club weird experiments on the internet um but there's also just you and the person in front of you because you're both sharing this experience whether you're naming mm. it or not so there's something there first of all the other part of it is in you know, whatever role you're in and whether you have lived experience or not, is there a way of sitting in that role that doesn't take the role itself too seriously? And what I mean by that is the, the, the little dance we're in when I come asking for help is I'm in so much pain and I'm desperate for you to fix me. Yeah. And you know... You can't fix me. <laughs> yeah. So how can that go in a way that is generative rather than frustrating for both of us? How, how do we kind of find a version of that dance that is life-affirming rather than, um, oh, we'll try this then. Okay, how about this? Or, you know, and it, and it is, you know, it, it comes down to the nuance of individual practice. And everyone listening to this will have their different ways of mm doing that dance with with a great degree of grace and skill in a in a system that often <laughs> often makes that hard but i'm curious your thoughts on that what what it brought to mind i did um quite a few years working in, in homeless services uh, back in the uk and also in new zealand when when i first emigrated and, and when you when you work in homeless services it's like all bets are off <laughs> you know you're you're literally dealing with just about every systemic problem a society has. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and traditionally mental health and, and addictions tend to be the bits that sort of scream out for help. Mm. But you're talking across the board, you know, all sorts. And, and, and when you do that, when you, you know, and one of the jobs I had when I came to New Zealand is nobody was really doing casework or anything like it. There were just basically lots and lots of soup kitchens and clothing, food parks packages for people who did have sort of whatever accommodation so they wanted to bring in a casework approach and you know they gave me this job to do it and um part of it is is 
is is the art of sharing with someone that a they're going to do it, not me. Like mm. this will all come from them. Yeah. Because as you know, you know, we've done studies. Like you put someone in a house, and that's the least of the things. That's the least of the problem to fix. You know, it, it feels like it should be, but it just generally isn't. Um, you've got to find a way to show them that there's all these various pieces and your job is to do the bit that you can do whilst also validating and recognising that there's lots of other bits. Mm. I think the best clinicians, support workers, whatever, do do that. They go, this is my piece. Peer support's a bit different because you can roam with peer support. But in a very tight clinical role, even if your job is a nurse triage, which is what my partner is, you can triage someone clinically whilst also sharing that this is one piece of a puzzle that they are assembling. And you can sort of manage expectations. Like, we don't finish this triage and then your problems are solved. You know, Anona talks beautifully about, you know, arriving in an inpatient world going, great, I'm at the place. Like, you're fucking not. <laughs> you're definitely not at the place you thought you were going to. Mm. So I think it is, it's, when you get in a role, you see the world through your role. And I think the best clinicians, lived experience or not, see the world through the person they're serving's situation. Mm. And it brings a bit of humility. It's a bit mm. like, you know, even outside of mental health, you know, when I've been for heart health issues... The guy's like, sure, we can crunch your blood pressure down. But what you're looking at is a lifestyle change. That's where the guts of this is gonna gonna gonna, you know, resolve. So I think some of it is is seeing it through your person's eyes and not through the role that you happen to find yourself in. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I do think that naming this um kind of two different paths that we're talking about the 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 simple story just asked for help got help got better within two years and then those of us who are on more of a lifelong journey yeah. i'd like to see more literacy around that in the mental health profession I, i'd like to, there to be more of an understanding that those are two very different paths yeah and if you remember the last one oh go on go ahead Oh, just because. So, because, and you said this, Gareth. If you, if you've tried all the, all the supposed fixes, like you tried CBT, right? Yeah. And it didn't really do the job. Yeah. Then you go through the same thing again. You go back, and they offer you that same thing. Yeah. And it's offered in this way that it's like. You know, here's the process. Follow the steps. You'll you'll get better, and you yeah. don't. Oh, that's frustrating. And it and it, it it is. Then that's where there needs to be space. There needs to be room for, like you said. It's not me. It's you. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I don't think it's a quantitative thing. I think it's qualitative because you follow that to the sort of natural conclusion, and where you end up is like is, this was the message I got. You know, hi, Gareth, you have a lifelong condition. You will always be on medication. You may well have repeat admissions to hospital in states of mania, and you'll spend most of the winter suicidal. Yep. Probably lower your expectations of what you could achieve in your life and don't have kids. That was roughly yes. the guts of it. So we don't want to go there. No. And in my little spiel that we were going to have put on a pillow, it's like, 
welcome. Things look tough for you right now. We have no idea why. <laughs> we have some options. And then the final piece of that little thing is, if and when you want to find some meaning of all of this, mm. we're ready for that too. And that's the piece that never gets never gets named in the system. Even the like good clinicians will say, hey, this might be spiritual for you. Or this might be, you know, some sort of, you know, existential crisis, but they can't do anything with it. Mm. And this is the beauty of, you know, things like the big feels, like the alternatives to suicide. It's like when you, if and when you want to find meaning, then we're ready. We have things for you. We have ways through this. And I think that applies even to the ones who get their fix. Yes. Because I know people who kind of do it, get fixed, and then 10 years later, they're like, what the fuck was that actually? <laughs> you know? So I, I will, I'm going to push back slightly on one thing there, which is that I think, I think clinicians and, and people in, in those more kind of healthcare roles, I think they can help with the meaning bit. Ooh. It's not it's not in their job description, but I've certainly like I have one I've had one therapist who you know I gave up on therapy um, until uh, because I you know I did uh, CBT and I had a very lovely uh, strength based therapist who who certainly helped me feel better but it didn't fucking change anything um, and. Mm gave up on therapy for a decade and the reason i went back to it was um for relationship counseling for couples counseling that turned out to be a really great gateway yeah. back into into therapy but the, but the guy that i found th this you know next time around was um so much better suited for me in terms of just his approach like he's much more in the, what i would say the kind of humanistic psychology yeah. vein which happens to be what i vibe with um in fact, I, what, the way I knew he was the right person right at the start was I, I had to give him my mental health, GP mental health plan that said I was severely depressed. And I had to give him that so I'd get my subsidy, but I, I gave it to him with a spiel, <laughs> which was basically, here's why I think this is not a useful frame for my current experiences. Um, yeah. So I do want help, but I don't want help through the frame of, well, there's something wrong with you, we've got to fix. And I told him my little spiel about the mental health plan, and he said, he just looked at me and he said, that's the most thorough deconstruction of the concept of depression I've ever heard. And I was like, I'm in the right place. Anyway, so that that practitioner and that particular setting, and then, you know, this may be factors outside both of our control that made this, was poss made this possible, but that was a space for some more philosophical discussion. Like, so I'll push back on your pushback. Go on. You arrived able to deconstruct depression. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd done a lot of legwork in that 10 years. So, mm. you know, you, you set the agenda, which is which is exactly what most of, you know, our listeners would probably believe in efficacy, empowerment, service-led, user-led. You arrived with like, here's what's not going to happen here. Yeah. So you were in power. Yeah. That's a very rare situation, particularly in the early years. and took you a lot of anguish and a lot of journeying. I'd say the second pushback is more systemic. Mm. Like you get your 10 sessions from having to cross this boundary of, of, of the, the hidden cost of asking for help. And it does cost you every time. Absolutely. Even as a seasoned pro. I just stopped doing it. This year I haven't even gone to get my GP mental health plan because I'm like, fuck it, I don't want to do that again. 
always makes me feel like shit. Here's the point. He's not in the mainstream public health system. Yes. So he's not the option. You know, mm. you can, for whatever reason, you're in a position where you go, do you know what? I'm not going to jump that hurdle, mm. but I'm going to carry on with therapy. Yeah. That's not the vast majority of people who, who do what we do longer term, like get beyond one or two years and they're still struggling. Yeah. That is not an option. So he's not mainstream. He's not traditional services. I'd even argue 10 sessions is reasonably tokenistic. If you need him every week for a year, why not? Mm. If it's working, we spend, you know, whatever we spend on medication, we spend whatever we spend on hospital wards, all the infrastructure, all the research, everything that goes with it, billions. We know it's billions. Yeah. I think there's a place to make that more mainstream, but it's not there now. Mm. So what can our listeners do? <laughs> this, is, this is sort of this is our, our formula. We're going to open up a yeah. massive can of worms and then well, what do you do with that? But but genuinely, I'm curious your thoughts on that. So so we've talked a bit about it. We sort of touched on this. We've touched on, I guess, in some ways, just naming that hidden cost. Um, you know? I think there's a wee step before that. Go on. I don't know. Like, I don't know if... I don't know if a post-it note on a fridge or or some sort of notification on your phone, just constantly being reminded that, you know, your desire to help other people has met at best an imperfect system and at worst a torturous one. Mm. Like this is your only channel for this. Mm. And and that hurts. Mm. And that's 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 challenging and tough. And yeah. there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to. I mean, you you spoke about like danger money if you get involved in consultancy work. It's like as in pay. You ha yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, yeah. So you've got to. You know, when I do work in the system, I I, I talk about the the money I get paid as hazard pay because it's just it fucking hurts. <laughs> yeah, and so finding ways to constantly attend to that is really important mm. I think that's where a lot of our sort of burnout and jadedness comes from it's like we forget that we're in this sort of imperfect place with a, with a good desire yep. and then after that sure sure honesty I mean we called the last episode out to have more honest conversations about medication this whole experiment could be called how to be more honest in mental health that's what we're really trying to get to <laughs> totally mm. and i guess the flip side of that is don't underestimate what you are bringing to this screwed up system yeah. often to borrow a phrase from you gareth at great personal cost yeah. because you know we we are the buffers yeah. We have the buffers between a system that does not get it and the people who who need it. Um, yeah. So that hurts and it will mean, and we've talked about this before, of, of how it sometimes means stepping away, it sometimes means taking a break, it sometimes means having a breakdown. Um, yeah. But you're bringing something to this work that, Others aren't. Ah, <laughs> oh, immeasurably. Literally immeasurably. You hear things differently, you see things differently, you think differently about it, and you say things differently. And I would say there's a real difference between your job and your opportunity. Mm. 
You've got a job to do. You can own that. At every point, it feels yucky to you. You can say, this is my job. But then you've got your opportunity with a human being in front of you mm. to sow some seeds. I mean, Graham and I started in a supervision, supervisory role. And my job was to allegedly make Graham better at his job. <laughs> and yeah, that, that was that's what was on the paper. Yeah. But when we met there was an opportunity to see somebody in all of what they were and what they needed. Mm. And you drop little seeds and, you know, and then you watch them blossom. Yeah. And I think that's, you'll be the only person who sees it that way. Mm. A lot of people are like, oh, we have a process. They do a process. They get better. They don't get better. We see them again. We don't see them again. Yeah. You're the one going, ah, Humanity. <laughs> Meet my humanity, even if you're not in a declared role. Yeah. That's how you're, that's what you bring to the, the work. So I think, it, you know, in a way, there's two messages here. So there's a message kind of for a broader uh, healthcare system, which is humility. Stop mm. pretending you have the answer. You have one tiny piece if you're lucky. Um, but I think for this audience, it's more humanity than humility because mm -hmm. you probably already have the humility. In fact, from the messages I get from you people, uh, too much humility. <laughs> like, there's a lot of people saying, I don't know, I don't think I can help, I think I'm a fraud because, you know, which makes sense when you've been the one asking for help and know how limited some of the answers can be. It makes sense to be skeptical of your own ability to help. But guess what? That's the strength <laughs> that you're bringing is that, skepticism <laughs> and that you'd be the only one asking that exactly am i am i making a difference you were the one actually asking that so and that question will keep you on your toes yeah. i guess the other thing i want to say as well is like by all means make mistakes mm. like get it wrong and then go back to the person says sorry last tuesday phew, i don't know what was happening but i totally got that wrong oh yeah yeah, that's... Like, that's so powerful for people, because they know it's wrong. Yes. You'll feel it in the room it's wrong, then you'll cover it up out of some sense of professional obligation or whatever else. You go home and go, that was wrong. Just go back and say, sorry, got it wrong. Yeah. Or, or even, you know, even if in those kind of murky situations, if you want to take right and wrong out of it, even just, oh, I feel uncomfortable about how that went, or mm. I feel, I'm feeling doubtful. Am, am, am I helping? right now yeah, yeah you know you can yeah you can ask that i've had you know my therapist interestingly enough who the one i mentioned who who i just think is fantastic at what he does um he got in touch with me and my partner after a few sessions to be like mm. am i am i helping <laughs> and if so <laughs> do you mind telling me how because i'm curious well I, I had this with a masseuse so i'm getting a bit of massage at the moment but not yeah, I mean, obviously I'm racked in pain like most people are, but mostly what I've realised is how much of my emotional, psychological, whatever pain is is embodied. Mm. So I'm like, oh, I'm really curious to play with that. So I'm getting a few more massages than, than ever before in my life. And my principle is like, go to massage therapist, get uncomfortably naked, and then just say whatever, just do whatever, make it all better. And then after the last one, she said to me, so what do you like? <laughs> I've never been asked that by a masseuse. Like, which bits do you find are useful? Because I'm like, oh, wait a minute, you're the professional. Aren't you feeling out for knots and all the rest of it? And she's like, oh, sure. But it's really helpful for me to know which bits you feel are giving you the most benefit. And I've never been asked that. There's a 
It's like, wow. That, that's a really good analogy. And there's a question I'll, I'll give you. Because sometimes it's hard to just say, well, what do you want from me? Right? Like that's, it's kind of a hard mm. question to answer. So there is, there's a question for exactly that sort of situation with massage or any kind of intimate touch like that, where you can ask, how could this touch be more perfect? And, and it's a different kind of a question because it doesn't imply <laughs> yeah. that there's anything wrong with the, with the touch that's yeah. currently happening. Because then, you know, it can get a bit defensive and it can be a whole thing. And it doesn't ask you to have the one true answer. It's just like, mm-hmm. you know, what's happening now? How could it work better for you? Even better, mm. you know? And I just, I wonder if that's, um, if that's something that, that people could so what would So well, how would we translate that into our world? Because we shouldn't be touching people, right? That's still not policy, is it? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm pretty sure that's, that's frowned on. At least wash your hands if you are. Yeah. Although I will say massage therapists very much a type of mental health support, let's be honest. In <laughs> oh, fact, sure. my physio, I've told things to my physio that I haven't told to my therapist. Anyway, that's another discussion. Um, but yeah, I guess it's something like, um, how could this helping relationship work better for you? And it's not a question to ask up front. I, I, it's a but question I, to I ask. wonder, I wonder if it's how, how could this work better for us? Yeah. Wow. Cause if I make it about you, then you're like, shit, well, I don't know. I'm just struggling here. Mm. But if I make it about us, which is the classic peer thing, right? Yeah. You know? All of a sudden, it's a shared responsibility. It's like, you know, what could we do? You know, yeah. Yeah, and, and that for me always comes back to the kind of, for me, my vision for all all helping roles is is greater transparency where you can say, like I say, I've said before, you know, often when we talk about risk, I think we mean worry. I can yeah. say I'm worried about you, not you're a risk. Yeah. I can say I'm having doubts that I'm, that I'm being very helpful right now rather than, um, you know, I don't know what else, what, what, you know, what, what, hold, just, hold, just, just bottling just, it up and, and, and wondering, you know. Well, just as a wee callback to my work with homelessness, so they gave me the pokiest little office when I got to, to Auckland and I was working with one guy and he had it all going on, you know. My, and usually it's crisis driven, right? He showed up and he was like, look, I've got a court appointment today. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. I was like, okay, <laughs> well, 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 I'll come. <laughs> I'll come with you and we'll see what happens, you know? And he was a, a hoffer. He was a glue sniffer. Yeah. <laughs> and he used to come into my pokey little office and he'd been huffing. He obviously had to huff to get over this hidden costing, this barrier of like, I have to go and speak to this guy about getting help. Yeah. So he'd sit in this room full of fumes like four or five minutes later, I'm smashed. Mm. I'm like sort of slipping off my chair, like feeling wasted. Yeah. I didn't make the connection instantly. And then after a couple of sessions, yeah, I did, I did a version of what you're saying. I'm like, so how's it going? Like, sure, we've, we sorted the core issue and I think then we did a, a hep C injection uh, test as well. So we sort of started with his sort of low-hanging, like this is the shit I need to get sorted this week. Yeah. And after a couple of weeks, I was like, so, so how are we going? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're on board, and you know, and I definitely wasn't pushing housing and employment, all the usual things you, you're meant to push in that space. I was just like, I'll just walk alongside us for a bit. Mm. And he asked me, he's like, and what about for you, bro? Mm. I was like, well, if there's one thing, yes, could could we meet outdoors? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you don't have to stop huffing for me. Yeah. That's your choice. But when you come in the office, I get a little bit wasted, <laughs> and it kind of. Puts me off my game, you know. 
And that to me, like this was before I'd even heard of, you know, formal peer support, but that was just like a really beautiful micro example of just negotiating the space, you know, yeah. just working out what makes it better. Wow. Um, hey, I think we'll leave this one here. Yeah. Another juicy, another juicy episode. We, we were talking between takes of this episode and last episode. Uh, originally, when we made Big Feels at Work, we envisioned it as like these little bite-sized episodes for your commute. But a lot of us don't have a commute anymore. So <laughs> the episodes are starting to get longer. I'm curious your feedback about that. Uh, hello at bigfeels.club if you ever want to tell us what you think of what we're putting down um but yeah hopefully you're enjoying some of this slightly more spacious stuff when it comes to these quite big juicy topics i will say yeah if you're like me i'm i'm definitely like podcast is basically my new zoppy clone that's that that was genuinely my alternative to to medicated sleep oh yeah me too i I can't sleep without a podcast no and I spend a lot of time, you know, scrolling back to the last bit I heard. So I, I think if it was one of these, it'd be like, did I hear about the, the homeless guy or not? I can't remember. Which which bit was I up to? Uh, thank you, Gareth Edwards. Always a pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you all, or you'll hear us all next time. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs>